But listen, there is a clear distinction between pulling someone out of their idolatry and joining them in their idolatry. So put on David's logic and emotion. Test your own practices and interactions with the world. Do you delight in the people of God or the idolaters of the world? Part of what it means to have no good apart from God is a hatred of idolatry. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Idolatry is the antithesis. It is the kryptonite of authentic worship. If you, like David, have no good apart from God, then idols should disgust you. Christians, as a result of God's mercy, love God, and they find their joy in Him. But idols contend for people's attention and affections. When we would set God up on a pedestal and behold and adore Him and find all of our satisfaction in worshiping Him, idols creep up alongside Him. Idols wedge themselves into our view, and they begin to compete for God's due glory. But idols don't add anything to our lives of any real substance. Idols, according to Paul's definition, are nothing. I want to say that again. The Bible teaches us this. Idols are nothing. And yet they're competing with God's glory. They are infinite hollow pits that we try filling up with our devotions. And in return, they multiply sorrows. They create confusion. It distracts us from the worthwhile goal of giving God glory and enjoying Him. That thing made up of wood or stone or wires, it's deceiving people. It's like the siren song. It coaxes them away from the safety of enjoying God and pulls them into the danger of enjoying the devil. And the result is multiplied sorrows now that culminate in damnation later. Do you not hate idolatry? Do you not turn to God and in that love Look at idolatry and despise it. David says, God is my deepest joy. Therefore, idols, my deepest disdain. Here's a slightly different question. Does your neighbor know this about you? Sometimes this means something as serious as not hanging out with certain people anymore. At least, maybe not in a social, cordial kind of way. It might be something as simple as not laughing at an inappropriate joke. But either way, you better believe that this will not put you on the fast track to being popular with the world. The world has its idols, and it expects you to worship them. 
We've seen this before. Like King Nebuchadnezzar and three faithful Jews, the world will throw you into a furnace and burn you alive if it gets the chance, if you will not bend to their desire for you to worship their idols. Church, we have to be okay with that. Do not fear those who can destroy only the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Idolatry, friends, leads people to hell. One great way that we can combat this, like David, is by investing ourselves in the church without any constraints. Find your enjoyment in God by pouring yourself into the church, and there you will taste and see His glory. How are you spending your personal time? Who are you spending your time with? Do you live your life like other gods that are nothing can do you good? Or do you, like David, find all of your good in Yahweh and in Yahweh's people? Test your hearts. Do your delights and sorrows match David's? David continues giving thanks for the good that he has in God in verses 5 and 6. Let's look there now. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is an excellent stanza. Look at the language. Chosen portion, pleasant places, beautiful inheritance. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. When David surveys a table of perfectly cooked fillets topped with garlic butters and crispy onions, he reaches for Yahweh. To David, there is no better taste. There is no other source of nourishment apart from God. Out of, all the wor- out of all that the world has to offer David, God is David's single most satisfying option. And so this verse is really just a positive statement of what we read in verse 2, where David says, I have no good apart from you. In verse 5, he is saying, I have the most good in you. God has so laid hold of David's affections that David can make radical exclamations of love like this from Psalm chapter 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Won't you pursue satisfaction in God like that? He is the portion that you need. And he can satisfy you. David continues in verse 5 by saying, You hold my lot, which means God is the Lord of the dice and the draw. There is no random chance when it comes to God. But then, interestingly, he says this. He says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So what does that mean? Let's think about that for a second. What does dice rolling and lines dropping have to do with each other? This language 
It is an allusion, actually, to the book of Joshua. It is a reference to Israel when they came into the promised land to inherit the land. And there God divvied up the land among the 12 tribes by lots. And whatever the lots were drawn, uh, the lines were then falling, if you, will, you could say, on the map. So by alluding to lines and lots, David is simply highlighting the fact that God has direct control over his life. And the Lord has always done him good. God strategically and perfectly works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But before we misunderstand this completely, we have to understand that David is not saying this only because his life is going really well. Don't forget that David is acquainted with suffering more than most. It's not the earthly gifts that David finds most pleasant and beautiful. It's the gift giver who is relentlessly and continually giving us himself. That's why David is so joyful. That's why David is at peace. The only reason that David knows no good apart from God. And the only reason that he has made him his cup, his chosen portion, is because God has made himself known to him. God has shown David his goodness. The point David is making is that the Lord has made things work together in such a way that David gets God. And it's the same for us. Brothers and sisters, our adoration of God is the direct result of undeserved kindness. Would you revel in that truth for just a moment? You only hear because God spoke. And no one makes him speak. You only love God because God loves you. And you did not make God love you. If you have received awareness that you have no good apart from God, then praise Him in a new and fresh way for showing you that goodness. He has shown you a beautiful inheritance. God is the gift. God is the inheritance. And there is more joy and more pleasures that will be worked into us by his sovereign hands. And that will certainly include sufferings. But be assured, the Lord holds the lot. The lines will fall in pleasant places. And we will inherit something beautiful. Now we move to the final stanza of David's thanksgiving in verses 7 and 8. It reads like this. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God's counsel is life. Without God's word, we are left in the night without direction or hope. In Psalm 1, David says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. David says in Psalm chapter 19, The law is more desired, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What better way to enjoy the goodness of God than to listen to his words? Have you ever been obedient to God and regretted it? Have you ever missed out on sin, looked back on that moment, and I blew it? I missed out on a sin opportunity. No, we don't. The Lord's counsel is good. And we should long to delight in it more and more. David continues in verse 7, a similar thought, saying, In the night also my heart instructs me. Now at first reading that, I found those words to be somewhat challenging. If anyone knew the natural wickedness of the human heart, it's David. So why can he trust his heart for instruction? Well, actually, I think it's because of his distrust of the human heart that he preemptively begins to pack it full of the Word of God so that when he needs to be instructed, it's not his heart instructing him. It's not his wicked, natural human heart, but rather the Word of God overflowing from his heart. And so one way that we can show our thankfulness to God is by combating our natural folly, by storing up the truth in our hearts. Notice then, it's David's heart, not his mind, that instructs him in the night. We should memorize the Bible with our brains. You have to have the raw data. But it shouldn't stay there. It must make its way from the mind to the heart. And the highway between them is love. The mind knows the truth of God, but the heart loves it. And friends, when you are in the night, as David says, you will know the difference. He's not modeling a brainy but faithless or heartless kind of faith. He is showing us knowledge coupled with love. So get the word into your mind and memorize it. But also do the hard work of learning to love it. Ask for God to help you love his word. We've already seen David begin to petition God to do what he already says he will do. Ask, receive from him. He wants to feed you with his word. And in those moments when you are doubting the goodness of God and you feel like God is silent, recall and recite his word from your heart and open up his word and begin to read it. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, God's goodness will shine through and you, like David, will bless his name. I think also that this is the essence of verse 8, which reads like this. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. How has David set the Lord before him? How has David put the Lord at his right hand? Think about that. I think it's by engrossing himself in the word of God, the place where God reveals himself. I think the application is simple. Keep your eyes on God. Take refuge in him. Look at him. Simply hold him in your gaze. The result, David says in verse 8, is unshakableness. The word of God creates a solid foundation that is more like a rock than it is like sand. And that is good. David delights in the words of God. That concludes then David's series of thanksgivings. David has no good apart from God, which can be seen in God's people, God's sovereignty, and God's word. And now David moves us to the second meaning of the phrase, I have no good apart from you. Now recall that the second meaning of this phrase introduces a problem. Namely, that if God has no good apart from God, what happens when he dies? Preserve, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If God is a refuge that can preserve David from death, then how does he get in? That's the question David begins to answer. I think at least the best that he knows how. Verses 9 and 10 are introduced with the all-important word, therefore. This means that everything that has been said in verses 1 through 8 are now culminating in an argument, a pretty large argument. So I want to paraphrase it like this. See if you can follow along. See it for yourself. I have no good apart from you. You have shown me your unmerited kindness time and again. I am filled with joy in you because of your excellent people, because of your sovereignty, because of your wise counsel. But one day, I am going to die. One day, I will not be with you anymore. And with this threat looming over David, he looks to God for refuge. And he says, I firmly believe that you will preserve me from the problem of death. So let all this lead us now right into verse 9. Look at it. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Keep looking. For or because, so he's continuing the reason for his rejoicing and his feelings of security. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. To translate it simply, David is saying, 
I'm not going to stay dead. That statement is borderline absurd. How can David say that his flesh dwells secure and that his soul will not be abandoned to the land of the dead and that he will not see corruption? The fact is, David's dead. Nathan, the prophet of God, told David that he would lie down with his fathers. And he did, in a grave, dead. He was put in a burial place just like everybody else. So what, what in the world, <laughs> what, like, what gives him the nerve to say that I will not be left in Sheol, the place of the dead, and I will not see corruption? But I, I want to go even a step further. <laughs> Peter the Apostle, when he was making this exact argument in Acts chapter 2, quotes from Psalm 16 to tell us this. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David's dead. To understand this, to look at verses 8 through 10, there are two simultaneous overlapping meanings here. First, we have to understand very simply, these words are about David. The grammar makes it very, very obvious. David is talking about himself. So let's think then about David. God promised David from the mouth of the prophet Nathan these words, I will give you offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So throughout his life, David had gained some insight into the coming realities of Jesus Christ, who is the offspring who fulfills the prophecy I just read from Nathan. Let's kind of take an inventory. David knew three things. That he was going to die, that his offspring wasn't, and that he was dwell personally in the house of the Lord forever. Conclusion, David believed in the resurrection of the dead. I don't think he knew how it was going to happen, but he knew something was going to happen. David only knew in part through a mirror dimly about the future. He knew he was going to die, but he also knew God was not going to abandon him. But here's the result. This is what's so astonishing. This was enough for David to look death in the face and say, my flesh dwells secure. What faith? Not only is he utterly unshaken by the looming threat of death, he says his heart is glad and he's full of rejoicing. David saw something great far off and he wholly trusted in it he grabbed hold of something that wasn't even yet real it's called faith future realities that he barely had gotten a glimpse of became more real to him than the certain grip of death i want to say that again david was more certain about resurrection than he was about death 
And he had never even heard the name Jesus. Friends, how much more should our faith strengthen our backs and steady our shaking knees if God makes a promise and you really put your faith in him, watch out. (laughs) It will make you strangely joyful and strangely unshakable. That's the first meaning of this text. It's about David. But the second meaning of this text is interpreted for us by Peter. Verses 8 through 10. Let's look at it again. Peter vindicates David's faith in a resurrection by making plain that these words in Psalm chapter 16, they're prophecy about Jesus Christ. While David did in fact see, or did in fact die and see corruption, like all corpses do, Jesus did not. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, David's tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we see then that Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Jesus was not shaken. His flesh dwells secure. He is not abandoned to Sheol. And he did not see corruption. Verses 8 through 10 are about Jesus. Now, all we have to do is overlap these two interpretations. And we conclude this. David actually knew, although he could only see it faintly, that whoever the Messiah was to be, and however he was going to accomplish it, the Messiah's resurrection unto eternal life would also be David's resurrection unto eternal life. David was right. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 22. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. We all have something in common with David. And that is the original sin that we inherited in Adam. The result of this sin is a just wrath of God which ends in our death. We all have an I'm going to die problem. However, the Messiah came as a man and he came with resurrection. If you are an Adam 
which you are, you will die. But if you are found in Jesus, which you can be by faith, then you will inherit eternal life. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ's resurrection unto eternal life is not just David's, but it can be yours as well. Here's what's being offered. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice the movement from a path to a presence to the right hand. The Messiah is the path of life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. And this path, it took David to a fortress. It was a refuge that preserves men from death. And once inside, David found not only a fortress, but he found a person. In Yahweh's presence, he found fullness of joy. And going a little further, David notices that the right hand of God is Jesus. That's exactly what Peter told us in Acts chapter 2. And here, there's pleasure forevermore. I want to see if you put that together. Jesus is both the path to life and pleasures forevermore. He is both the means to preservation and he is the end of your resurrection. He is the Savior that saves unto himself. He gives dead men eternal life so they might have full and forever joy in God. David has no good apart from God and he will be preserved forever through resurrection. Therefore, the praise of I have no good apart from you has through resurrection overcome the problem of I have no good apart from you. Yet there's still implicit here, a little further in verse 11, what I think is the underlying meaning of the entire story of the Bible. Why did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world. You might say justification. Or maybe you would say sanctification. Others of you might say glorification. And while in a sense these answers are accurate, they are actually all means to an end. Jesus died for two inseparable ends so that you would have joy in God and so that in that joy, God would be glorified. Jesus died and rose from the dead and shares those benefits with you so that you might proclaim, I have no good apart from God forever. And so that God would be glorified in the exclamation of that praise forever. Justification removed the barrier of our unrighteousness so that we could approach God, enjoy Him, and bring Him glory. Sanctification separates us from the world, and it creates a new people, so that we would together enjoy God and bring Him glory. Glorification is a renewing of our broken worship organs, 
and a reversal of the death problem so that we might forever enjoy God and thus bring Him glory. These are means to the ultimate end. Satisfaction in God which amounts to His glory. To my brothers and sisters, how's your enjoyment of God going? How's your relationship with the church? What are your meditations on God's sovereignty like? Are you delighting in the scriptures? It almost sounds silly, but it's true. Fighting to be satisfied in full and forever joy, it's a tough battle. But keep him at your right hand. He will do you good. And finally, friends, if you're not a Christian, would you make God your portion and take refuge in him? He will preserve you from death. The path of life is plainly in front of you. Come into the shelter of God like a man would walk through a door. Here is the door. Enter through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the one who loves you and gave his life for you. Christ is dead for you. If you will, but simply trust in his atoning death on the cross and throw yourself on his finished work, you will receive forgiveness of sins and inherit eternal life, namely God himself. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. For you have no good apart from God. One day you will surely die. But if the Lord is your refuge, he will preserve you in himself, where in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we have no good apart from you. Teach us to love the things that you love. Teach us to find joy in the things that bring you joy. Create in us a new heart that loves your commandments. Help us to taste your word like honey. Help us to delight in your church. Help us to see your sovereignty as beautiful and pleasant. And in these pleasures, God, would you glorify your name forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.